You're listening to Live Whole, a six-part series from Resonate Life Church designed to help you take a step towards freedom and wholeness in every area of your life. In this third session, Carolyn Dunnigan talks about strongholds and demonic partnerships in our lives, how they form, and what they look like practically in our relationships. She'll also define important concepts like enabling, normalizing, and desensitization. What do these look like in our childhood, as well as how we parent our own children? Thanks for listening. Let's get started in week two. Today we're talking about strongholds. And a stronghold, think of it this way. We all want to get to a problem and break it up and get rid of it. But what we want to do is find out where did this get formed? How did this get here? You know, and so what we do is we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to bring us healing in an area. But what you find is he more often will bring exposure to what happened. He won't bring you, you know, like poof. He more often will say, well, here's how it got here. And here's what I want you to do. The Lord will bring you instruction. He'll bring you practical things. But most of all, he wants us to always grow and to stretch and to build spiritual muscle. And God is sovereign, and there's a lot that he will do in a sovereign way. But often, you know, we'll have a suddenly with God, but it'll come after two years of prayer, two years of journaling, weeks of fasting, praying, you know, so even a suddenly with God will come with us being willing to do the work. You know, us saying, I'm, I'm here, Lord. So a stronghold is a, is a subtle, layered thing. So think of it this way. The first part of a stronghold is just a thought. It doesn't have roots on it yet. It's just presenting itself. So remember, the enemy doesn't have any real power. He can only tempt, he can only suggest, and he can only chatter. He doesn't have real power. But the minute we agree with something he said, it gets empowered. And so someone struggles with fear, struggles with fear, struggles with fear. And as soon as they agree, this is going to happen. This is real. As soon as you endorse what the enemy's saying, he gets to create, it creates a little door where he can come in and out all he wants. And this is why there's so much in Scripture about marshal your thoughts. Make your thoughts obey. Bring them into the captivity of Christ. Beware of what you speak. And we think of these things as moral lessons. They're really not. The Father's trying to teach you how to stay in charge of what gets rooted, what gets to form a space in your identity. Because a stronghold comes over years. It takes years for a stronghold to, to form. You know, in Scripture, you may also find the word captivity. Bring these things into captivity. So captivity can bring something that we take back to power. Captivity is something that shares power with the Lord. So agreements usually start in a subtle way. So maybe, you know, you know, children aren't sophisticated. They don't think, hey, grown-ups, get your act together. They, in a simple way, they hear mom crying or dad's never home. And it goes through the hopper, oh, 
I probably shouldn't have asked for XYZ. If I was different, this wouldn't happen. So kids make very simple interpretations of their environment. You know, or even worse, they'll make the interpretation in an environment this is normal. It's normal for a man and a woman to never talk. It's normal for parents to not like each other. It's normal in a house for people to not touch each other. So see, we're looking for these big abusive events, but it can be these little subtle things. It can be either. So if something just becomes normal, right there, it's a stronghold. If something that's not normal becomes normal, if something that should not be becomes normal. I had a client that was telling me, you know, what a great, great upbringing she had and what sweet parents she had and that she had this phobia about being robbed and she would go and touch the doorknobs in her house over and over at night. And I, I said, you know, people usually don't form phobias or compulsive behavior without trauma. She said, no, I had wonderful parents. They'd married their whole lives. And so it was months and months before she said that her parents would both start drinking after work. They'd both fall asleep on the couch, and the house was wide open. Doors, windows, TVs. And that she would go around the house at 6 or 7 and start locking up. It took her months to tell me. Because the stronghold was there, something bad's going to happen, and it will be my fault. And then there's the vow, but I'll be on top of it. I'll be a step ahead. I'll be so on top of it. Nothing bad happens to us. So event, stronghold, vows, captivities, because that fear was there all the time for her. It wasn't just there at bedtime. And so remember, kids are not sophisticated. They don't think, hey, grown-ups, get it together. They think, I need to try harder. Or if I were a little different, this wouldn't be happening. But that's called internalizing. So children just eat whole whatever's happening, and it goes through their filter that they somehow have a part in it. Either they cause it or they can fix it. And the problem with the agreement, I can fix this, is you can't. Children will always fail if you give them an adult's job. They'll always fail. And then there's another interpretation. Oh, I'm weak. I'm weak. And so it's a no-win. Because either way, it sets up a captivity. It sets up a stronghold. You know, strongholds can be extremes. You can have a stronghold of, I'm going to try harder. I'll always be a step ahead. I'll always be on the lookout. I'll always know what's next. And the other extreme is I'm out I don't care I'm not even going to try but see you've got both come out of the same stuff so a stronghold can form from something traumatic huge scary terrible obvious and it can form around the intangibles the little subtleties of what go on in a house and so and you don't realize something's not normal until you're an adult a lot of times. I remember I was dating someone and I told him, I said, oh, he had two brothers and sisters. I said, oh, I bet y'all had some horrible fights. He goes, yeah, we fought sometimes. I said, yeah, but I found in my house if I grabbed an object, you know, 
and we would fight and hit each other, but, you know, we were kids, and his eyes got huge. He said, your brothers and sisters, you all hit each other? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Didn't your brother? Yeah. He said, no. We would never hit each other. I said, never. You not once. You never hit one of your brothers or sisters. And that's when the first time I thought, you know, one, I should not tell this story again. <laughs> huh? No. And two, maybe that wasn't normal because everybody fought in my house. Everybody. All the time. You know? And, and it was important to position yourself somewhere where you had advantages. So, so I didn't know. So I had an agreement in me. This isn't a big deal. It's just the way my family is. I'm sure other families are like that. So the agreement in me is this is no big deal. And so what do you think that positions girls for when they grow up with violence, abuse, control? This is what? This is normal. What's the big deal? So then you don't react properly to being mistreated. And that's the worst thing that an agreement does. So a boss mistreats you and you're nice about it. Neighbor mistreats you, you're nice about it. Your oldest sister, brother, you know, mistreats you or makes funny in front of your kids and you're nice about it. Oh, he doesn't mean it. Oh, that's just what they're like. So you don't react normally to things that are not normal when you've had abuse. So agreements start, think of the agreement, the initial interpretations, observations of a child. Think of it as a big fat seed that starts to sink under the ground starts to put down roots, and the enemy comes, and what does he make sure? He makes sure that that big fat seed gets watered, watered, reinforced, watered, reinforced, watered. He makes sure it gets food. You know, and so maybe your agreement or your captivity is, this is my fault. Or maybe your agreement or your captivity is, well, I should have tried harder, or if I was like this, this wouldn't have happened. You know, or a captivity could be any time someone tries to talk about feelings. So in my house, things were pretty out of control. And so whenever problems arose, I always overreacted internally, like, what's going to happen? Are we going to have normal or are we going to have a big old fight? Am I going to go to the neighbor's house? Am I going to stay home? And so someone would come to me at work and say, uh, hey, the boss wants to talk to you. And all my alarms, so I would go, I would overreact to normal events because issues, problems, complaints, conflict, confrontation, in my planet, you never knew what was going to happen. And so you should avoid those at all costs. And so for girls, and not being sexist, for most girls, try harder. Try harder, be pleasing, be helpful be low maintenance, be sweet, make yourself indispensable, you know, be nice about it, be kind, be kind. And so girls will fall into try harder. So a boy raised around unpredictable something, they can make that vow of try harder, but boys will typically, you know, power up. You know, I'll never be in this position again. Part of the stronghold for them is, you know, I'll never get 
overpowered. I'll never be made to feel this way again. I'll never let anybody corner me like this again. But the problem with that is you have to have a demonic partnership because in order to control being cornered or in order to control feeling, feeling cornered or feeling controlled, feeling attacked, you have to have false power. You have to make yourself big. Or, you know, some men are just absent. They just don't come home. They work too much. They have the tea. I have, I have another friend who I was working with, and his dad would come in, and within two minutes of coming home, he'd have headphones on and be in front of the TV. And, he, and I said, well, what, what is that universal language? If someone always has headphones on, what are they saying? He goes, oh, my dad was just saying I've had a hard day and I'd like some time to myself. I said, really? So how long did he sit there like that? And he goes, well, I guess till we were all in bed. I said, so what do you think he was saying? He was saying, stay away from me. See, we want to reconfigure because we're talking about people we love. And the older you get and you have your own kids, you go, oh, this is hard. You know, I was never going to do this, and here I am doing it. Oh, it's really hard to have kids. So you start to feel compassion for your parents. You get older, you get more mature. You say, wow, look how much better they were than their parents. Look how much more they gave me. But what that does, that tenderness, we skip over the feeling it. If you don't get your history straight, you can't get better. If you don't get your history straight, if you have an idealized version of your family. So I was trying to talk to my sister once about, you know, the law of violence in our house. And, she, and I said, you know, what, how does it impact you now, da, da, da. She said, you know, if they had just had us in some extracurricular sports, I think it would have been very different. So she was like, we're not talking about that. I'm not feeling it, and we're not talking about it. And so that's, you know, agreements, vows, brokenness, all bring that to the surface. So you have to have a demonic partnership. And listen, this is, I always have men as an example for anger and women for numbness. It's just a stereotype because for the sake of time, we're going to go with a stereotype. So say a man has a vow. I'll never get cornered again. I'll never get overpowered. I'll never let anyone attack me. So he partners with hardness, control. She has a vow, I'll never be unimportant again. I'll never be lonely again. I'll never feel inadequate or weak again. So she partners with numbness and silence, and they go click, but it's a bad click. So she's partnering with demonic silence, numbness. He's partnering with false power or absence. But this is a stronghold and it's a captivity because you're sharing sovereignty. You're sharing God's place. So it's like, you know, God, you're my high, high place. You're my refuge. You're my rock. Except when uh, someone wants to talk about issues, then I'll take it. I've got it, God. <laughs> you're my rock. God, you're my sovereign. Except... When I'm having people issues, I'll take it. I'll get it. I've got it. So the strongholds, we have to form a demonic partnership. You have to form a network with behaviors that are maladaptive, 
avoid conversation, or take control of conversation. Break down, fall apart, be sad, be weepy. You know, it's just as hard. So, you know, someone may control a hard conversation by falling apart. I'm just terrible. You're just, I'm just the worst. So then all of a sudden, out of confusion, you start to comfort them when really you're trying to confront them. So that pity, that victim posture, that's another way to control conversation. So the strongholds create, think of all the little roots that come out of our big ugly seed. So you have the early experience is the seed and the roots are the behaviors. We form all these bad behaviors. So let me say something about normalizing. So normalizing, so think of it this way. You know, I thought all families, all kids hit each other, fought in the yard, broke stuff, kicked walls. I didn't know better, so I had normalized it because it was normal in my house. You know, in your house, it may have been normal to have one parent and not two or to have a parent that put work first or to have parents that didn't talk to each other, or to have parents that had addictions, or to have parents that were sad all the time, to have a parent with depression, to have a house that you keep really quiet on purpose. You keep everything, you know, flat. And so the problem with all that is if it becomes your normal, you're not meaning to, you train your children into it, and not meaning to, you take it to work. So someone comes and they try and talk about an issue and right there you're like, oh, that's just how they are. Oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, that'll work itself out. They're like, what? No, it won't. Mm. And so you have that behavior at work and then you take that behavior into your other relationships. And then you even form a criticism of people who aren't like you. So someone, women will accidentally see their numbness as I'm just so chill, I'm so patient, I'm just sweet, I'm nice, I just don't let thing, I just don't let anything ruin my day. But actually, see, I've got this demonic partnership with numbness and silence, you know? And then culturally, what do we do with someone that's real chilled out, quiet, never upset, stroke, 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 stroke? You know, culturally, what do we do with men that work 60 hours a week? What a great guy. Man, such a breadwinner, such a go-getter. What a great guy. But you look at those kids, fast forward 20, 30 years later, and they have all the behaviors and symptoms of kids who grew up with violence. You don't have to have violence or severity to have a stronghold or captivity or to have some, something demonic in charge of your house. It can be subtle. So my favorite, Isaiah 5, 20, who knows it? Woe to you who would call good evil and evil good. And who would trade bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter? You know, dad's never home, never home, never home, never home. And kids cry, they're sad, they want to see him. And mom trains them, oh, he's doing, he's taking care of us. So it's kind of like you should be 
guilty or ashamed for being sad. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Grieving and wanting to see their dad every night is good. Loving him, wanting him. But see, mom comes in to fix it. Oh, no, no, this is don't be sad because she doesn't want to be sad. So she trains them to call something that's not good, good. So most of the time when you're shutting down someone else's feelings, it's because you don't want to have what? Your feelings. So if I'm squashing you from getting emotional, it's because I don't want to get emotional. And so that can be loud, obvious, angry, mean, severe, but it could be the subtle, hey, let's go get a cookie. Oh no, they don't, they're just jealous of you. You're not rejected. It's all right, dad's doing good stuff. Oh, mom doesn't mean it. That's just mom. Her mom used to say the same thing to her. So you need to quit these feelings. Now here's the hard thing, developmentally around eight. So zero to eight, you're not sophisticated enough to dissociate unless something's pretty severe. But around eight, kids are sophisticated enough emotionally that they're sad or they're lonely or they're scared or they feel unsafe or they're hurt or they're angry or they're just unhappy and they don't know why. Because you have to have a grown-up express your feelings for you when you're little, you know? So a four-year-old is sobbing, do you feel left out? Yes! So if you have a grown-up that won't talk about their feelings, you don't have your translator. So you don't learn. So you're, you know, 10, 11, 12, and you're setting fires in trash cans, and you don't know why you never had your translator. I'm lonely. I feel unimportant in my house. I worked at a boy's home, and and I will say I was so traumatized I didn't have kids till I was 40 because the abuse I saw. And, you know, the boys were dangerous. They were they were dangerous. It was a one-year program. And... Uh, you know, we, we had animals, and we had to be careful. It was part of the program because they'd be cruel to the animals. They'd be cruel to each other. They'd set fires. After about two, three months, what we would find is once you were their translator, so that made you feel embarrassed. Did, did that make you feel like you were gross or weak or did you feel like they did that because of who you are? As soon as you purge, even if someone else has to do it for you at first, and then all the acting out would stop. And so after that, I worked on an adult psychiatric unit, and it was like, this is a lot worse than those boys that were fighting and setting fires, you know. And so normalizing, calling good evil and evil good. And there's a great confusion in Christianity that anger is not nice or not necessary. And if someone has no anger and they're never angry, something's wrong with them. That's numbness. That's not possible. There is healthy, righteous anger. It's like us saying, oh no, Lord, you've got it wrong. I'll just, these nice, friendly emotions. So niceness is not the same thing as kindness. See, Jesus wasn't nice. He infuriated people everywhere he went. They either worshipped him or tried to throw him off a hill. You know, they worshipped him or they hated him. Everywhere he went, there was one person. He didn't change, oh, getting around my mom and dad. Oh, this is my work friends. Oh, these are my party friends. He had one personality everywhere he went. 
he had congruency and wholeness. And so we have this feeling that we need to be nice. That has to be our application for everything. But here's the difference between niceness and kindness. Niceness always demands dishonesty. You can't be nice unless you're basically lying about something. So it's not nice. It's sin. Kindness is to say things that someone may not want to hear with love. You can't speak the truth with love unless you speak the truth. So part of a stronghold is, you know, we develop all these controls, all these bizarre behaviors. You know, one of the controls is I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to never be in conflict with anybody. So we're nice when actually we're being pretty dishonest. Or we wait too long to say, you know what, I'm kind of mad about that. So by the time we share it, it's here. The volume's way too high. But the Isaiah 5, if you ask the Lord what emotions you think are out of control, does it feel out of control to be sorry or apologetic? Does it feel out of control to be vulnerable or tender? Does it feel out of control to be angry? Does it feel out of control to say, wow, that, that hurt? Because, you know, again, developmentally around eight, kids will mistakenly think, they don't think, you still don't think it's these grown-ups. They don't have their act together. You know, eight, nine, ten, eleven, you still think it's you. You haven't become that angry, confrontive teenager yet. <laughs> it's all you. So kids in that age group, eight to twelve, go, it's these feelings. It's these feelings. It's this loneliness. It's this feeling gross. It's this feeling self-conscious. It's this feeling sad. It's feeling lonely. It's feeling this stuff. Here's what's wrong. And they numb down and they check out. They detach. They kill off that part of themselves. And the bad thing is, is they instantly feel better. And it's a long time before you can shut that down. Or call that out. And that is a demonic partnership. And it saves the family. They no longer think my mom or dad make me feel bad. They think it's these feelings. So see, it reconfigures. Now I can see my mom and dad the way I want to see them. Now I can see my family the way I want to see it. I can see my idealized family, my idealized mom and dad, if I just sacrifice and shut all this down. And so there's a huge stronghold there. That's a big calling, good, evil. It's good to have a range of emotions. And when I meet someone that's either okay or mad, I know they've got stuff to work on. When someone has two emotional states, they're okay or mad, or they're okay or sad. Okay, you've got stuff if that's your range. We're supposed to have lots of gears. So just a couple of definitions. Okay, the first is enabling. So enabling is a simple thing. Let's just define it this way. When I put a positive spin on something that's not right, when I put a positive spin on something in order to not have to address it. And I'll tell you, we role model this stuff. My daughter has her first job and her check was wrong. It was almost $100 short. And I said, 
oh my gosh, you need to say something. She goes, no, it's okay. I'm new. I better not say anything. I was like, I did that to her. <laughs> I said, I'll call up there for $100. She's like, no, you don't. So anyway, it's okay. I don't need it. It's all right. I don't have to have that. It's okay. I can take it. All that's enabling. That's all a positive spin. Or, well, my dad, you know, was a great breadwinner. He was amazing. He took such good care of us. We only saw him on Sundays. But we had to be quiet because that was his rest. Okay, so there's a positive spin. You know, gosh, he, he put work first, or he put his friends first. You know, or my mom was sad all the time. Or, you know, I, I have clients who will have positive spin about grandparents because their mom or dad did. Well, yeah, granddad, he picks on us, he teases us, he pinches us, but that's okay. My mom said he did it to her. Well, my mom said he doesn't mean it. So positive spin is enabling. See, it's subtle, but we teach kids how to enable people. The second thing is normalizing, and that's calling something that's not normal, normal. Calling something that's not good, good. Also denial, like my client whose parents fell asleep after drinking every night. One, she denied that they endangered her. Oh, they didn't mean to. Well, no, they didn't. And they still endangered you. Well, they weren't alcoholics. They just drank every day until they passed out on the couch. But they weren't alcoholics. They never lost their jobs. <laughs> so denial, this is not happening and this is not true. It's an outright rejection of what's in front of you. Also, desensitization. So just think about, has, has any, now I'm not a working for real person. Who in here has had calluses? Okay, I've never had a callus. I'm sure it's not fun. But a callus, how long does it take to develop a callus? Weeks, months, yeah. And then over years, you know, somebody may have tons of them. Okay, so a callus doesn't come on one day because you would go, wow, look at that. So it's a subtle layer on top of a subtle layer on top of a subtle layer. And so desensitization is when something happens over time because most things that cause us to form unhealthy behavior happen really in a gentle, subtle way over time. We're looking for, you know, being hit or beat up or starved or molested. And those are all called, that, those are overt traumas. But see, we're looking for these little covert, subtle, the things that just kind of happened every day. So it forms the roots, it forms the strongholds, desensitization happens. And think about your heart, you build a callus up on your heart. And as soon as you become hard-hearted, you feel better, you feel safe. It's very hard to part with a stronghold when it works. I used to drive home over the same stretch every day and at least once a week, I would throw my cigarettes out my car window. I'm not smoking anymore, that's it. That's it, I'm throwing these away. And then, you know, I'd buy some more. 
I'd smoke on her tail of the pack. No, I don't smoke. I'm throwing these away. And so one time I saw a road crew out there, and I thought, they must think somebody insane. You know, look at all these full packs of cigarettes. Sweet. They probably went there at night, you know, after the work crew was over. Look at all this. But see, I was trying in myself. I'm going to get rid of this. But I hadn't addressed the fact that it was comforting. Rituals are comforting. It was companionship. I was lonely. It was the first time I'd lived by myself because I wouldn't address the why I could not get free of the behavior. So you can tough it out and, you know, I know people that quit drinking, they just kind of like, I'm not going to drink. But when you muscle it or tough it out or do it like, you know, like diet, smoking, drinking behaviors, if you do it without going, why do I do this? It will always come back. It will always come back. And then the enemy loves that because he gets in there and he goes, see, look, you're just weak. You deserve all this. You deserve all these things that are happening to you and you don't deserve, see, or it can get in there and accuse who? God. See, look, prayer doesn't work. Why'd you? Look, here you are. And all that prayer, all that crying you did. But, but it's a life work to understand what's the flesh. When am I in self? Which is me throwing my cigarettes out of my car once a week. That was self. So of course it was ill-fated and temporary. What's the flesh? What's the self? What's the Holy Spirit? And what's the enemy? And is a lifetime to know those three voices. So sometimes even sincerely wanting deliverance from a behavior, you can't get it. And that's why you have to ask for help. Because if you could fix yourself, you would have done it a long time ago. You have to ask for help because it takes another person to help you dismantle. Why is this here? Why do I do this? And also, a lot of times, the Lord is trying to teach us about trust or humility. He wants us to take that hard heart and trade it back in for that young, soft heart, the heart of the person that was lonely, the heart of the person that wanted to feel precious, the heart of that little person that didn't always feel safe or important. And we don't want to feel any of that. It's like, mm, no. Why would I start having all my feelings again if I'm going to feel that? Because it's a global event to shut down your feelings. And you will shut down vulnerable, unimportant, lonely, unsafe. You will get rid of all that stuff you don't want to feel. But guess what else you get rid of? Joy, tenderness, humor, sweetness. And you can't connect to the Holy Spirit out of, out of, out of a hard heart. So it's all or none. It's kind of off or on. So this is why sometimes people really sincerely want to change and they can't. They've got a little stronghold back there. It's not a matter of sincerity. It's not always a matter of unforgiveness. I know people that are in great forgiveness with whoever hurt them and they still can't get free of something because sometimes we misunderstand what forgiveness is and isn't. How's that for me? my segue. Next week we're going to talk about that part. So, uh, But what I want to do is I want to pray for everybody. So, Father, you are so good. Surely, 
Surely you've borne our griefs. You've carried our sorrows. And by your stripes we are made healed. The chastisement of our peace was on your back. And you are a good and practical God. And you have answers and you have partnership. Lord, there are some things that you will not do. You wait for us and you demand that we do. And that's to humble ourselves. And there are some things that only you can do. And that's by your sovereignty. And there are things that only other people do through you. And Lord, let us be willing to be in whatever season we're in. And I bless, bless, bless everyone here in Jesus' name. And I bless us all, Lord, to have the fullness of who we are in Christ. Joyful, funny, happy, energetic, tender, sad, lonely, angry. Who are we to tell the potter, you have made me wrong. Lord, you made us right. And may all strongholds come down. May all the ways we try and manage, judge, criticize ourselves be exposed. May any lie that we're made wrong be revealed. And may all this be done that you would receive great, 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 great glory. And may we be carriers of wholeness and wellness and love in Jesus' name. Who, does anybody have a question that they wanted to ask Carolyn? least one who else had any, any okay good mm-hmm. first one's real easy what were the three voices you said you could live a lifetime trying to hear or learn the three voices mm. is that i didn't hear your okay. thank you sir his question was what are the three voices that it's a life work it's a life work to understand when it's just my own thought which is the flesh when is this the chatter of the enemy which is demonic chatter. And when is this the Holy Spirit? Because I can think something is me and it's the enemy. I can think something is me and it's the Holy Spirit. I can think something's the Holy Spirit and it's me. So it's a life work to discern, discern, discern these three voices. Is there another question? Mm -hmm. When you talked about um, kids need an emotional translator, were you saying that ages 8 to 12 is a good time for parents to be present to be to help them navigate their emotions? No, it's more like 0 to 4. 0 to 4. Yeah, when they're, when, so when kids use nonverbal, like they're stomping their feet, or they're pounding something, or they hit you in the face when they're 2, they don't have words. Or when they're crying and they don't have words and you say, do you feel left out? Did that make you sad? Are you mad about that? <gasps> yes. You know, so they don't always have a word. Was that scary? Yes. You know, now kids, you know, you may be your child's translator for a long time. You know, are you feeling jealous of your brother? Are you this? Are you that? But emotional translator, if, if it happens really early, then kids start to recognize, you know, a couple of like, oh, I'm sad, I feel left out, I'm scared, I'm mad, I feel impatient. You know, if you give them just a couple of little stakes in the ground early, 
they've got those and they can build on them, but in a house where no one's allowed to talk about feelings, or a house where only one person is allowed to have feelings, and that's usually the angry person, you know. And it, it can be an extreme of someone that, you know, gets their feelings hurt, makes you feel guilty, how could you say that? You hurt my feelings. So you could have a, you know, someone with depression or victim stuff. How do you help older children when you didn't provide that interpretation at the younger age? How do you help them? So the question is how, you know, first do we kind of help our children develop a feelings vocabulary? You know, first off, the most important thing you can do is have feelings in front of your kids. And this is where we get kind of skewed as Christians is we think we have to always be happy. We have to always be have this positive spin. And so we accidentally train our kids to be somewhat dishonest emotionally. You know, well, we're just going to bless them. Well, just give them grace. We'll just forgive them. Those are Christian ways to shut people down. Those are Christian ways to shut your children down because you don't want to have your feelings. So if you would just be more emotionally honest in front of your kids... Yeah, I'm mad. You know, so I, I know couples that make, like, we'll never fight in front of our kids. And actually, you should, if it's not out of control, disagree in front of your kids and then repent each other in front of your kids. They need to see both. Hey, people get mad at each other. Nobody dies. Oh, you can say how you feel. Oh, you can have hard conversations. See, they need to know that. Because if you carefully go hide when you have hard conversations or you're upset with each other, they think, my parents never fought. What's wrong with me and my wife? And your parents only have fought like cats and dogs. <laughs> they just hid it from you. So kids need to see disagreement. They need to see hard conversations. They need to see repentance. They need to, say, they need to see humbling, hey, I shouldn't have said that. Or you know what? You were right. You were right. I shouldn't have gotten in that. They need to see humility, apologies, and then they've got this little tool set. But with older kids, it's hard because a lot of times the invitation isn't there. So if you, you know, at pre-puberty, like 9, 10, if they have their own boundaries, you don't want to trample them because they're trying to form their personhood. I have the right to say no. And kids start to really experiment with saying no in a great big way. <laughs> no! I don't know, with older kids, you, you really have to make sure there's an invitation. This is the age where the kids should see these disagreements with their parents or from zero to, to whatever, it's fine for them to see that. Oh, so he said, is there an age where it's okay to have disagreements in front of kids? Well, you know, first off, there's, I, I'm not, I don't treat children. And so, you know, there's other people that could probably give you a better answer. But I think if something's under control, it's always okay. You know, if there's name calling, if you're slamming cabinets, well, that's scary. You know, if you're rolling your eyes or raising your voice, well, that's, the kids shouldn't see any of that. And if they see it, you don't pretend later and come back and go, hey, who wants ice cream? You come back and go, um... Hey, I just slammed the door in your dad's face. 
I'm really sorry you saw that. Was that uncomfortable? Were you scared? Were you mad at me? I shouldn't have done that. And the pretending it didn't happen, the kind of quickly, that's just as damaging. If it's under control, start early. If you enjoyed this session of Live Whole, look for week four as Carolyn unpacks the anatomy of forgiveness. What is biblical forgiveness? And what are some dangerous misconceptions we have about it?